Welcome to the Golden Shadow. My name is Elsa Polizzi. And I'm Aaron Rogerson. A few weeks ago, we ran our first workshop on the labors of Hercules. This is part in an event series called Monthly Mythos, where we explore a particular myth or fairy tale, looking at the symbolism and archetypal structure of the story. Once we break down the psychology of the myth, participants engage in exercises and discussions on the themes, all with the aim of deeper self-inquiry through mythos. So today we wanted to cover the basic premise of Monthly Mythos, the symbolism and meaning of the labor of Hercules, and what to expect from future events. So the labor of Hercules is a kind of like 12 part myth, typically 12 labors. Mm -hmm. The workshop we did only covered the first six because mm -hmm. 12 is too many. Way too many. Even <laughs> six, uh, six is a lot, especially with all the details that are within the, each part of the myth. Yeah. It's like six myths in one giant myth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We kind of bit off more than we could chew in, in some ways, but it ended up working out pretty well. I thought so. The myth of Hercules is a, it's a hero's story. It's not quite as distilled down as a lot of the modern heroes stories that we think about, like Star Wars, for instance, Star Wars is kind of like a very distilled hero's myth. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Hercules is a myth that originates probably from like hunter gatherer societies. So it could be, I mean, I don't even know how to gauge this, like maybe 10,000 years old in some sense in its origins mm -hmm. and it evolves and changes and things get added onto it over time. But the actual, uh, the myth kind of, as we know, it, the labors of Hercules is something originating from at least like 2,500 years ago. Mm. Right. So this is an old myth, yeah, an old hero story. And because mm. of that, it's not quite as formulaic, I would say, as a lot of what we think of as being hero's journey stories, like the Hobbit. Mm. So Hercules, um, is the son of Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. And he's the son of one of uh, Zeus's affairs mm -hmm. and he is not Hera's son no no but his name is at least in the greek tradition heracles which is glory by hera or glory through hera or glory by way of hera um you know i, I find the fact that we call him hercules which is his roman name really interesting i'm not quite sure why that's what really gripped the collective because Heracles definitely expresses a lot of the core of his general story and arc throughout his life, which is that he is constantly being antagonized and punished by Hera due to being this um, a child of infidelity, which is sort of typical of a lot of uh, Hera's antics, which we can get into the sort of symbolism of that another time. But ultimately, uh, Hercules, it's this really difficult a hero's journey story. It's about transformation and redemption through these arduous tasks that are given to him. And we see that this heroic consciousness that's represented by Hercules is both something that people uh, venerate and worship um, the Her Hercules as a figure for, but at the same time, uh, when it's one-sided, when it's um, unintegrated, we see how destructive it can be as well. Right. So the Hercules story is one of venturing into the shadow in many ways or confronting the shadow. Mm -hmm. The labors are interesting because it's almost as if the shadow has all these different facets, yeah, different forms, mm -hmm. which is true for us is like the shadow is not just one thing. It's a whole 
landscape of things that are kind of below the surface for us. Um, but uh, Hercules is a, a thonic hero in this sense. Mm. And in fact, like in the myth at some point, he does venture into the underworld. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the later labors that we're not going to cover in mm -hmm. this episode. But this, um, this kind of dynamic of Hercules as ego consciousness in one sense, battling monsters, which represent the shadow and venturing into these sort of nether realms. Um, it's all tying into this kind of like psychological significance that we want to get into is that this myth can be understood uh, psychologically, mm -hmm. phenomenologically as an expression of what is happening inside of us, which is why it can be used as a tool for self-inquiry. Yeah. And that's part of the point of, of monthly mythos and of, of going through these myths in this way, workshopping these myths is that you can actually use the narrative framework, the sort of mythological patterns to um, map onto your own journey, yeah. your own experience and find ways to kind of examine who you are and what you're going through and where you're, where you're going um, with this kind of myth. Yeah. They're templates, uh, myths and fairy tales of our own personal collective archetypal experiences, yet it's being externalized. So it allows you to engage with it outside of that deeply kind of personal narrative. Yet at the same time, you can relate to it because it's so archetypal, because it's so collective. You see parts of yourself and your own struggles in the heroes and heroines of mythology and it's extremely powerful, I think, when we can approach myth in this way, because in some ways it's like a reclaiming of what this is, which is deep psychological truth that speaks to our becoming, to that path of individuation. So Hera, if we're thinking of her in this way, represents a kind of initiating force mm. for Hercules. Yeah. Or kind of like the antagonizing chaos. Mm-hmm. Hera is as sort of this, uh, this feminine energy that is very powerful. Yeah. Well, she's the great mother archetype yeah. and we recognize that archetypes are not inherently good or inherently bad, but rather have this, uh, totality of expression. So you have both like the nurturing good mother, but you also have like the sort of vengeful, terrible, dark mother as well. And even in that dark side of the pole of the archetype, that's often driving the individual towards a deeper inner uh, realization, uh, kind of pushing against their boundaries and having to transform. So Hera, as that antagonistic figure, is that aspect of the divine principle that's provoking transformation. And she's doing it to like the greatest uh, heroic character of Greece. So of course it's going to be this really intense sort of like dazzling journey of, of pain and challenge, but also of success and recognition. Yeah. There's also kind of this other angle of coming at, uh, Hera as kind of like just sort of representing the sort of, um, the chaos in your life that maybe provokes you, um, whether or not it's like a like shadow or psychological thing. Mm. Like if you don't do proper diligence in your life, if you don't do proper maintenance, if you don't integrate the shadow, for instance, like life will terrorize you. Mm. Um, you know, the same examples that we, we used before is like, if you don't ride around in your car with your seatbelt on reality will punish you for that. Yeah. In some sense, there's kind of this aspect of reality that like, if you don't 
do your proper maintenance on yourself. If you don't become more complete, reality will snap at you. It'll slap you. It'll, it'll destroy your life if you're not careful. So you have to uh, have this upkeep in your mm. life to be at the proper place. And I think this is kind of demonstrated by what Hera ultimately does to Hercules, which yeah. is uh, she makes him go crazy mm -hmm. right? she induces a kind of madness in him yeah and because of this madness he murders his family mm -hmm. right and there's kind of this notion that because hercules is not a complete individual he's not taking care of himself properly maybe uh reality comes in and it wrecks his life yes and this provokes yeah. him onto the path of i need to figure out who i am yeah in some sense and that's yeah. not how it's framed in the myth <laughs> let's say um but uh, you know, in our lives, for instance, like something might happen to you, some tragedy might happen to you and it make, makes you realize like, I do not know what's going on or I don't know who I am. And mm. it provokes you onto the spiritual path yeah. of seeking. Yeah. Of, like I need to figure out what my life is. And that's kind of what Herod does for Hercules. Mm -hmm. we, we see also Hercules as this incredibly like exaggerated character. So his heroic aspects are exaggerated. His weaknesses, his shadows are exaggerated. And that's what Hera is playing upon. That's like what reality is playing upon that. If we continue to exist in this one-sided way where we allow ourselves to become overinflated or we allow ourselves to not integrate other aspects, we will find ourselves in these situations of our own making. And that's what's being expressed in this story. It's through that kind of madness that is um, put upon him and the destruction of his family that Hercules realized he has to go on this path of integration and confront all of these different aspects of unconscious material. And that's really how we're approaching the labors. Each one is a representation of shadow, is a representation of unconscious material that he has to come to grips with. So he goes to the Oracle of Delphi. Mm -hmm. Some other stuff happens like in between that, I think. And there's actually like a lot of different versions yeah, as of, always. of the myth. <laughs> so it can be kind of convoluted. But he goes to the Oracle of Delphi. Mm -hmm. And she essentially tells him that he needs to go uh, put himself at the feet of his cousin, yeah. Eurystheus. Yeah. Who is, unbeknownst to Hercules, sort of like an agent of Hera. Of Hera yeah. So he sort of, Eurystheus as this, uh, this king who is sort of a weakling and kind of scared. He's kind of like the anti-Hercules in yeah, many ways. Yeah, kind of sickly, born young due, due to Hercules actually, but ultimately like he's in service to like a weaker part of his consciousness. Right, so so Hera kind of as like uh, reality sort of lives through the Eurystheus and is still sort of prompting these labors, mm -hmm. um, these, these monsters that Hercules is forced to confront. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's get into the labors. Um, we won't get into a lot of the details of the story, but hopefully just give you the main points. Um, so the first labor that Hercules is given is to slay the Nemean lion. This is probably the, one of the most famous, well-known ones that I, I feel people recognize, but the Nemean lion is this indestructible large uh, lion who's ro roaming around the countryside, you know, terrorizing people. And when Hercules comes upon it, you know, he tries to uh, cut it with his sword or to shoot it with an arrow and realizes that it, the skin cannot be penetrated. And so there's this, uh, you know, set of, of 
following dynamics where Hercules is trying to uh, overcome the lion and at a certain point realizes he has to chase it into this dark cave. And as he does so, he uh, bashes it over the head with his club. He strangles the lion and he strangles the life out of it. And finally, the Nemean lion is dead. This kind of indestructible uh, animal uh, couldn't be slain by the sword or the arrow, but rather needed to be overcome in this more uh, tactile way. He had to really wrestle with this part of himself, you might say. And we start to see how Hercules is utilizing this energy of the shadow towards transformation. Um, as he's uh, finishing up the labor, he has to skin the animal and bring back the hide and of course, the the hide is indestructible as well. You know, the sword's not going to cut it. The arrow's not going to cut it. And he is uh, given a tip from Athena to use the claws to cut the skin and the hide off of the lion and to bring it back to his cousin, King Eurystheus. And of course, if you've seen lots of images and paintings of Hercules, you realize that he doesn't give the, the, the Nemean lion hide to Eurystheus. Actually, he continues to wear it throughout the rest of his adventures, sort of showing an integration of this wild, aggressive principle that's now in service to Hercules. Right. So this is kind of like the most straightforward or obvious labor for Hercules, because even though the lion is sort of impenetrable, impervious, its skin can't be pierced, it's still a labor that Hercules can solve using brute strength. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of represents this sort of uh, this conscious um, trait that Hercules identifies with most, which is which is brute strength, and that's like the most obvious way to go about integrating the shadow at first mm, is to do right. what you know. Yeah. So he's brute strength. That's all he knows, and he goes to try and use this on the line. It doesn't quite work at first. So he kind of needs to start like thinking outside the box a little bit, yeah. but not fully. Mm. He still strangles the lion. Yeah. Um, that's how he kills it. He's still using like his like, you know, grip strength, which is crazy to <laughs> do this. Um, and then uh, skinning the lion with its own claws is sort of this notion of having to use a sort of quality of the shadow in order to integrate the shadow mm -hmm. or uh, needing to kind of in some sense recognize the shadow as being part of you yeah. in order to integrate further. So he has to use the lion's own claws on the lion. And when he does this, he uh, gains this sort of wisdom or gains this power or gains this kind of uh, transformation. And that's demonstrated by him taking the lion pelt and wearing it. Yeah. Now he's integrated the shadow. Yeah. The, the shadow is something that he wears around. And so he's reclaimed a part of his lost being in this way. Yeah, I think the lion is also a really good symbol for Hercules. There is both the aspect of glory and pride and kind of being like the leader of the land, like the head of the pack. But at the same time, there's this deeply aggressive, wild, violent principle that's implied in it as well. So we see that his first labor is facing this uh, both conscious aspect of himself, but also the part that Hera was able to manipulate, you know, like she took uh, his aggressive, violent principle and turned that into a madness that caused the destruction. So he has to come to grips with that part of himself that caused his sin. I think it's important to point out um, 
the similarity to your dream that we did for, for <laughs> yeah. the Alyssa dream series episode. Yeah, go back and listen to that episode. episode 18, maybe? I, I, I can't remember. I don't know. But where you encounter a bear. <laughs> a bear. And you skin the bear. Yeah, and, and, and then, then the I wear skin. Yeah, this was... <laughs> This is something I want to bring up in Monthly Mythos when it makes sense, but these archetypal stories and images and motifs do arise in dreams as well. And there's actually two labors that uh, are in Hercules that I have had similar dream motifs of. So you start to see the interconnected web of the archetypal structure when these things come up in dreams, but they're also uh, present in myths. Right, so moving on to the second labor. Yeah, the Hydra. The Hydra. Okay, this is probably the most popular one, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely the most famous. Um, yeah. It's the most striking image-wise. Yeah. And maybe just the sort of... Uh, it's like the Hydra itself. The the mythological sort of uh, mechanic of the Hydra mm. as the beast that keeps... Uh, multiplying. Keeps multiplying the more you try to kill it. Yeah, yeah. And possibly because that applies so well to our notion of the shadow. Right? Yeah. The more you try to kill the shadow, destroy the shadow, the more you exacerbate it, and yeah. the more it kind of multiplies. Seriously. Yeah, so labor two. Um, Hercules completes the first one. He's sent off again to the Lernaean Hydra. And here we see that it is time for him to face what is a actual... Um, like immortal creature it actually is uh, fully uh, indestructible in its totality because each time that hercules uh, cuts off a head to grow back in its place so uh, this sense of being able to overcome it in that kind of uh, brute strength more direct way that he did with the with the lion is not going to work here um so in certain versions of the story Hercules runs into his nephew, Aeolus, and there is um, a sense then that he's calling upon some different resources to figure out how to uh, overcome this, uh, the Hydra, this labor in a way that is not necessarily the most straightforward path that he would walk. There needs to be a uh, a new discerning way for him to uh, sort of strategize how to take on the Hydra, and he can't do it alone. So um, Aeolus, the nephew, suggests that they um, cauterize the wound. Every time Hercules cuts off a head, he'll cauterize it, and that will prevent the, the other heads from growing back. And it actually works. So there's this sense of partnership and the, the feeling of support that comes in um, those inner psychic resources that you might say that says, try this a different way. Try this a way that you wouldn't have thought of. So it's very roundabout, the Hydra, uh, compared to um, the lion. Right. So Hercules is challenged to think outside the box even more. Mm-hmm. He has to use um, traits that he doesn't normally identify with quite as much, like finesse mm. um, with the sword yeah. instead of the club. Strategy. Strategy. Yeah. Um, he has to do some like clever, cunning things. Yeah. Like, Thinking function stuff. Right. And he also needs help. And I'm not sure how explicit the idea of like Hercules not asking for help before this is, but mm. still kind of the idea that like we often try to confront our shadows by ourselves yeah. and it doesn't work. And we're, we attack the Hydra alone and it just makes it worse and worse and worse. And we actually 
benefit from calling upon outside resources mm-hmm. um someone who can offer uh some insight or uh, can provide some kind of quality that we don't possess yeah um and that's what hercules does and it works hmm. um but uh the head of the hydra i think it's, it's just one head yeah it's right? one one sort of indestructible immortal head right and that ultimately cannot be destroyed so even after they've cauterized all the other necks i guess you might say mm-hmm. there is this one head that's left and they do cut it off and then they bury it and it's sort it's being contained and it's being buried but in some ways the the labor itself is not being complete the hydra right. is not destroyed Right, so part of the shadow is being compartmentalized yeah, and yeah. buried. I, mean, I think that's kind of fun to play with. There is like he doesn't fully integrate the shadow; he just buries some of well, it. Yes, it's like and, it's going to come back together, and it does. Like, yeah. And it does. Um, we see once again in this labor that um, his successes, the part of it that uh, that is successful, does provide him with a kind of like reward or a new tool. So he got the the hide in the first um, labor and in the second labor he dips his arrows into the poison of the hydra and carries that around through many following myths being able to use that powerful deathly function to uh, to be in service of him as well um but that poison for another time is also like linked to hercules death so there's a feeling that that compartmentalization of the shadow will come back around at a certain point for hercules and is ultimately um, part of his destruction yeah another interesting angle you could take on on the immortality of the hydra is that like the shadow is in some sense immortal Mm. like We've heard this a few times, but someone uh, claiming, I have fully integrated my shadow. <laughs> and whenever someone says that, yeah. they're either crazy or lying or they don't actually understand the shadow very well. Right. I think it's probably mostly like they don't fully understand the concept. They, they have a certain idea of what the shadow means, yeah. which is like, I no longer have any problems or vices, yeah. which even that is complete BS if someone claims that. But especially the shadow. The shadow is not something that we fully ever get rid of mm. and in fact i would say that you are constantly producing shadow yes da- daily yes absolutely because you need maintenance you don't get to a certain point like like shadow integrated and then you're done for life it's yeah. like no <laughs> there's more stuff that's going to emerge as you live and so this sort of idea is like the hydra is immortal is like the shadow is immortal in some way mm. and so while we need to integrate it we also need to understand that like it's never going to go away yeah yeah Part of the expression of this aspect of the shadow not being fully integrated is that this labor is nullified, both because he received help, which I guess isn't really a nice symbolic gesture towards calling upon resources, but um, <laughs> um, and he also doesn't actually we'll kill the Hydra. That part yeah, we'll just forget about that part. <laughs> but but the uh, the labor is nullified by Eurystheus, the yeah. king. He says yeah. doesn't count. You had help. Yeah, and you didn't actually kill it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so labor number three. I I love labor number three because the energy shifts, the dynamics are being changed up, and it's uh, capturing the Cyrenian hind. So the hind are these large sacred deers um, with golden antlers and bronze hooves that are sacred to Artemis and. Hercules is tasked with capturing. Specifically female deers, right? Hind yes, means yes. female, female deer. deer. Is that mm-hmm. right? yeah. So yeah, it's both sacred to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and wilderness and the moon, etc. And it's a female deer. So 
we are getting into this dynamic where Hercules has to dip into the feminine principle. And not only does he have to kind of uh, dance with the feminine, he can't overpower it. He can't just brutalize it. He can't destroy it. He has to capture it and he also has to return it back uh, to where it came from. So this labor is getting into uh, the feminine shadow for, for Hercules. Right. So this is, this is a change of pace again, but even more of a change of pace for Hercules because um, he's like a grasping personality, like mm. a yang very personality, yang, very yeah. active principle. Mm-hmm. Brutish, so he, wild. Yeah. So how does he kill the lion? He grasps it and yeah. he just strangles it to death. And <laughs> yeah. it's like with with the hind, there's actually this sort of yin embrace that has mm. to have like the feminine. Mm-hmm. He has to let go. Yeah, the receptivity, right. the coming into relationship with rather than the domineering of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hind is known to be so fast that it could outrun an arrow. So Hercules spends an entire year chasing the hind all around Greece, all around surrounding countries. And you see that test of will and patience that he has to um, endure to be able to complete this labor. And finally, after a year, he's able to capture the hind. And um, as he returns it back to Eurystheus, there is the recognition that this is a sacred animal to Artemis. So he cannot kill it. Um, in some versions, it's she uh, says, you know, I will, uh, you know, forgive you for doing this if you return it to where it came from. And um, what we see is this kind of uh, negotiation with the feminine principle, but also an aspect of the feminine that's willing to work with him and uh, guide him through a more gentle initiation process rather than the antagonistic feminine of of Hera. So you're seeing kind of the the different natures of the sort of multiplicity of, of the different archetypes and how they can both bring transformation and lessons, but just through different ways and through that slightly different nuance. So the fourth labor? The fourth labor the is... Aramanthian <laughs> boar. The Aramanthian boar. Saying that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this one's pretty wacky. Super wacky. Yeah. And <laughs> this one almost, it seems, I mean, it's hard. Again, there's there's many versions, so it's hard to know uh, where the focus is actually being directed. But this, this myth seems to have like a, a big sort of like side story mm-hmm. that... Um, almost seems more salient than the actual catching of the boar. Yeah, yeah. But um, Hercules is traveling to Arimanthos. Mm -hmm, Mount Arimanthos. And um, he's going to meet with Pholus, Mm -hmm. who is a wise centaur. Yeah. Who lives in a cave. Mm -hmm. I think Pholus actually means caveman, Mm. right? Something like that. Something like that. Um, And him and Pholus are hanging out, they're eating, and Hercules wants some wine, uh, maybe he's demanding wine. Yeah. Um, and the only wine that Phobos has is this uh, magic, like, god wine. That was Sacred given to, Dionysian wine. It was given to him by Dionysus, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so as he opens it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Hercules, Hercules <laughs> is like, yeah, I'll take that one. Give me that one. Um, and as, he op- <laughs> as, as they open it... Uh, you know, this is like Johnny Walker Blue or something like that. It's like just like so expensive and so good. Yeah. And like Hercules is like, give me that. Um, <laughs> even though he's like this brute in a cave. But uh, the wine is so fragrant that it, yeah, it attracts tracks. all these yeah. centaurs. Yeah. And so these 
it's almost framed like it's like a like a, a collective of, of centaurs like yeah. almost like an entire king group yeah like or like, or a, like all the ones that were in the surrounding area right. like they could smell it or they were called to it in some way and it puts them into a frenzy which kind of you know i wish we had time to kind of get into the dionysian principle but there's that ritual madness that the the drunken principle that takes over individuals through dionysus and being the god of wine and the centaurs go into a frenzy and they start attacking hercules and he starts shooting them all and killing them one after one i think mostly with the poison arrows from the hydra yeah and he like waylays just like an entire group it's just so much death mm-hmm. all because he was sort of insistent on having that uh that glass of wine and as uh, as they're sort of you know in the aftermath of of the battle Folus picks up a an arrow and sort of remarks, you know, about how much death could come from something so small. And he drops the arrow and it hits his hoof and he dies, of course, because of the poison. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next part of the story is visiting the next wise centaur, Chiron. So from Folus to Chiron. And this is where he actually gets insights and uh, advice of how to take on the Aramanthian boar. Does he mention to Chiron what happened? <laughs> So just leave that part out. I think in some versions, like the 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 battle kind of moved towards Chiron, mm. and that's maybe part of like where some of the other centaurs are running or something like that. So yeah. either way, Chiron gets involved, and um, he both gives the advice and the assistance to Hercules, which is that you know to capture this boar, you've got to drive it into an embankment, and then you can you know, tie it up and bring it back with you. Um, but in some versions of the myth, uh, Chiron also accidentally, accidentally gets shot with an arrow. And uh, that's a whole another story for another time. The one thing I, I want to point out about this labor um, side story, you know, aside is that the Aramanthian boar is another one of these really wild, violent, terrorizing animals, um, extremely aggressive, but this time he doesn't have to slay it. He has to capture it. So from the Cyrenian hind, he learns strategy. He learns patience. He learns being able to kind of work with some elements of the wild principle. And he's applying that to this labor and capturing the boar and bringing it back to Eurystheus. Right. So we're seeing progress in some yeah. sense with, mm-hmm. within Hercules. He's he's coming to a place of greater balance. Yeah. Hopefully, as as sort of symbolized by catching the Aramanthian boar yeah. rather than destroying it. Yeah, except he kills all the centaurs. <laughs> yeah, except the centaurs. The, the centaur thing is interesting, and I think it, it does kind of again get into this idea of his sort of uh, unbridled masculine rage that mm. Hercules sort of has, yes. and like it's mm-hmm. it's not even rage is not probably not the right word, but like um, Hercules wants to drink, and uh, this sort of uh, creates the situation in which he like accidentally kills all these centaurs. I was like, yeah. whoops, how did that happen? And then he also kills his friend that he's, yeah. that he's feasting with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also ends up killing Chiron eventually. Yeah. Um, and it's this sort of notion of Hercules's inability to keep himself in a balanced place, his inability to not walk around and accidentally like destroy things. Like, Oh, whoops. I just like slaughtered that entire generation of centaurs. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh well, you know he he's he's having to confront these things, and part of going to Chiron to sort of uh, 
after he's slaughtered these centaurs, he has to go to Chiron and get the wisdom of the centaurs in order to complete this task. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these interactions that are going on with these these parts of him that are out of balance that need to be brought back into the fold and need to be reclaimed. Yeah. I think the centaurs uh, are a really powerful symbol being half man and half horse of the integrative principle of the wild, instinctual um, kind of animal nature with that of man. Mm. And specifically Chiron and Pholus are the two most highly evolved versions of that because usually the centaurs are like uh, quite uh, aggressive and um, they will like often kill people. So they aren't, they aren't wise. They aren't often tamed, but they have a contrast against Pholus and Chiron who represent a more evolved form of that symbol. And I think the fact that Hercules kills them shows that he has not integrated that part of, of the wild principle you know, being met with the more human um, evolution into himself. Right. The, we, we explored this on the Wounded Healer episode. That, mm-hmm. that we partially covered Chiron, but this sort of half man, half beast thing is like representing that balance. Yeah. Again, and like even in some ways the balance between like the conscious and the unconscious self. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chiron is like like the shamanic yeah. liminal figure mm-hmm. of like he's traveling between worlds. Like yeah. there's the human world and then there's like the beast monster world and he's actually a combination of the two and so hercules as slaughtering uh that balance and then needing to go there to like ask for advice from him at the same time yeah it's interesting all right labor number five cleaning the aegean stables so after capturing the boar he is given a new task which is no longer about the slaying of any monster but rather this pretty uh sort of entertaining task i feel like eurystheus gives him because the stables are um housing something like over a thousand divine cattle and they've either never been cleaned or they've been neglected for something like 30 years and hercules is tasked with cleaning all of the feces and the dung from these stables for the king um so we we see that i think eurystheus is employing a sort of like cultural leverage against hercules because to to act basically like a stable hand to be covered in feces to do something like this would be extremely demoralizing it would um kind of uh hurt his reputation as a cultural hero it's degrading it's degrading yeah so I think Eurystheus is like quite, you know, tickled by giving him this uh, task. There's no way he's going to be able to do this and keep his honor. So Hercules shows up, you know, he's scoping out, you know, the scene. And he says to the king of, of, of the Aegean stables that, you know, I will clean this and I will clean it in a day. And if I do, you will give me, you know one-tenth of the cattle here and it's such a ridiculous claim that of course he agrees so hercules goes and um, heads up land and diverts two rivers into the stables and flushes them clean so he's able to not only complete the labor within the day but he does so without once getting his hands um in the dark shadow material the poop <laughs> The poop. <laughs> yes thank you mm-hmm. Um, this is another labor that is nullified and I, and I see it sort of twofold. There's both the element of his pride and arrogance that's come into play. He 
claims that he can do this so quickly and in one day that he should be paid for it. And that is not the dynamics of the labor. So, you know, strike one, that's why it's nullified. And two, he doesn't actually do it himself, but rather draws upon this really powerful primordial principle, aka the river, mm -hmm. um, to cleanse the energy of the Aegean stables. And I think there's partly something interesting here, which is that like rivers as this flowing uh, water, as that unconscious symbol, it's like these clean threads of unconscious material that can come forth and kind of cleanse the um the the stables but ultimately i'm i still see this as a sort of bypassing of the of the integration of the shadow because if you could just flush the toilet and all of the poo goes away yeah. you know you didn't actually do anything it's right. like maybe you learned a lesson here about something that can be called upon but at the same time like you need to get in it your hands need to get dirty you have to be the plumber kind of working to unclog the pipes and hercules doesn't do that in this case Right. So the, the poop uh, as a pretty potent symbol, I think we know this just from dreams, right? Is yes, this is this shows up a lot in in dreams as pipes that are clogged, um, like the house is going to become overrun and overflowed with feces or you have to uh, like fix the toilet. This mm. is the same kind of motif, which is like there has been a neglect of the shadow material and it's been building up. Right. So the, the plumbing of your house in the dream is representative of kind of like the unconscious in your psyche house is representative of like your reality, like your world and the pipes overflowing with uh, human waste is like the shadow is coming out and it's going mm -hmm. to overwhelm you Yeah, and you're not doing proper maintenance or you're not doing proper upkeep on yourself to prevent this from happening. Um, so the poop in the stables, um, as, as something that Hercules, uh, it's there and he has to do it and he's agreed to do it. Um, but he doesn't want to do the dirty work. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, the spiritual bypassing is like a great <laughs> illustration. It's yeah. like, you know, like, do you want your shadow integrated? Like, just like do, do some ayahuasca and that'll do it. It's like, mm. Maybe, like, maybe that'll help. But like, that's like, that's not, that's not real shadow integration yeah. in isolation. It's like, right. you still have to do the work. Yeah. It takes your entire life. You're not just going to like, uh, you know, push a boulder out of the way and have this river come through and clean away your shadow. And that's what Hercules does. And it's like, ha ha ha. And he just like dusts off his hands and it's yeah. like shadow integrated. Yeah. Um, now give me my cattle. Right. Right. But reality says, no, that <laughs> you yeah. cheated. Yeah. You cheated. That doesn't work and you can't cheat the shadow. Yeah. Um, and that's why the, the labor is nullified. Mm -hmm. So labor number six, um, we are venturing back into the slaying of these kind of wild animals who are terrorizing individuals in the land. So labor six is the slaying of the Stymphalian birds, which are these, um, you know, really large birds of prey that um, eat people and are so destructive. Like they'll send out these like bronze feathers and cut people up and they're, right, they're like made of metal. Yeah. And they can shoot projectiles. Yeah, somehow. projectiles. Yeah. Like these crazy bronze beaks. Yeah. And their poop is toxic. And what a poop they stuff. Have toxic poop. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also like divine, divine toxic poop. Like the cattle were divine and they have yeah. this poop. And these birds are like magical monster birds, but they yeah. have this toxic poop. Um, but they're terrorizing 
the countryside mm-hmm. right? and so they're like they're eating all the food they're destroying all the crops they're pooping, pooping everywhere. everywhere yeah they're breeding like crazy mm-hmm. and they're just like straight up like eating people yeah so there's this kind of notion of um the birds representing like these this swarm uh yeah. this part of the shadow that eats away at you that causes famine mm. and disease mm. it's like you become unhealthy because you're not um able to properly manage these shadow contents and so it's just like little pieces of, are being bit off of you constantly yeah yeah, yeah like so, what's eating away at you and just right. and uh, stealing your energy or just slowly you know uh draining you of that life force mm-hmm. and i think this especially shows this kind of like shamanic nature of hercules which i think most people really wouldn't consider with him but as this kind of like phonic hero uh able to move between worlds the kind of of liminal dynamic as a demigod that he has to take on these kind of um life-sucking animals not by once again like you know, climbing up the trees and just like bashing them all to death. Like he's got to use some strategy. And once again, Athena comes through this kind of archetype of feminine wisdom who relates to the masculine and balances it out. Uh, she gives him this rattle that's made by Hephaestus. And as he kind of, uh, you know, shakes it around and makes all this noise, it scares the birds and then they leave the trees and then he's able to shoot them down. Um, so there's both this sense with the rattle that he's like awakening you know, like the the negative spirits um, to exercise them. He's kind of uh, sort of scaring them out of the dark holes that they are occupying. And he's then sort of bringing in the new helping uh, dynamic to kind of clear and cleanse the space. So anyone sort of familiar with shamanic rituals might recall um, and kind of bring this image to mind of when you begin this process of journeying, you have to awaken the helping spirits. There's often drums and rattles and noisemakers. We're kind of waking up the land and kind of telling it to come forth, but you're also trying to sort of exercise, you know, like the, the negativity. You're like, you're creating a container to explore all of this unconscious inner material. Right. So the birds are in a swamp, right? And there's this kind of uh, half land, half sea aspect of the, of the swamp. It's mm-hmm. between worlds, yeah. like between the conscious and the unconscious. Um, and, you know, Hercules cannot do his strangle thing. You know, he, like walk up to the birds and strangle them. <laughs> right. And, you know, he keeps trying to get close to the birds and walking to the swamp and he keeps falling in mm. and it doesn't work and he has to keep getting back out. And he's trying to walk over to the birds again and he just keeps falling into the swamp and it doesn't work. So... Again, this notion of like needing to think outside the box and also to draw upon certain traits you have that you don't necessarily identify with in order to integrate the shadow. Mm. Go about this in you know a more sort of yin, passive, feminine way mm. um, because your instinct to kind of just like go out and like just punch it in the face doesn't work. Yeah. So that shows that by Hercules saying, okay, wait, and he's inspired by like Athena, the feminine, right? right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not going to walk to them. I'm actually going to do something sort of I wouldn't even think of, which is like make a bunch of noise and the birds will fly out. And, and then they, I, and they then come to him in that yeah. way, right? The receiving aspect of the feminine. Right. So kind of getting into this idea of like how do we approach like doing self-work and how do we kind of dive into like the unknown of the self? It's like you, you got to try things that you wouldn't consider trying, mm. things that you might laugh at. So if you're like a really, you know, tough masculine guy, like you might be presented with the idea of like doing some tarot for instance. And you'd be like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like I would never be caught dead doing that. 
But it's like maybe that's what you need. Yeah. Like instead of like the sword, like you need like the rattle. Mm, yeah, I like that. So after we complete the six labors, you recognize this really dynamic um, inner structure that's going on with the myth. When you can see it through this symbolic and psychological lens, there's so much potential to amplify these themes into um, vessels of self-inquiry. So after we kind of run through the myths um, during the event, then we turn towards the workshopping portion and towards exercises um, and really taking each theme, amplifying it into a deeper psychological reality and using that as a prompt. Right. So the idea here is that we're kind of like being reductive um, we're distilling each labor down into sort of like a key idea yeah. of like, how can you like relate to this? And so just for example, um, the Nemean lion, uh, we distill this down to the idea that the lion represents like what you identify with most. Mm -hmm. So as far as working with, uh, our unconscious contents, working with the shadow. Part of our problem is that we identify so heavily with the conscious thing we recognize in ourselves. So when I think about myself, who am I? What is my number one trait? Like I might think that my number one trait is, uh, my thinking function, like my intelligence, my rationality. I can solve any problem with my mm -hmm. thinking function and I identify with that most. Um, but that's probably why, my shadow material um, has to do so much with what I don't identify with is because thinking isn't going to work. And so the Nemean Lion as a workshop tool, um, you could ask yourself, what is the uh, trait you identify with most? And uh, what are the ways in which this trait is uh, dominating? Mm. It sucks out all other possibilities. You try to solve every problem by thinking. Yeah. Just like you try to, you know, fix everything in the house like using the hammer like you only have a hammer that's your tool and so right. you go around just like hitting things with the hammer like that'll solve everything right and it's like well you're not gonna like be able to like repair this chair like just like hammering it like you need other tools it's very destructive right yeah so you see uh, in the Nemean lion how the over identification with one-sided uh dynamics and functions cause a destructive principle so write about it you know what is that trade that you over-identify with at times that yes, is in service to you and is helpful, but also at times leads you to being unbalanced and what kind of steps can be taken to bring it back into balance? Right. So the Hydra, the second labor, um, you know, the thing that keeps coming back over and over again, every time you try to get to chop it, mm -hmm. um, chop the head off. And so what are, what are some patterns in your life, some bad patterns, some negative patterns that you really don't want to be part of who you are. In fact, you might just completely uh, deny that they're part of your pattern. Like, I don't have a problem. <laughs> I don't have a drinking problem. I don't have a smoking problem. I don't get into the same romantic relationship over and over and over again. That's not me. So yeah. you might not identify with this, but the exercise is what is something maybe that you don't strongly identify with that keeps coming back to haunt you yeah. over and over and over again. And you keep trying to solve it, but it keeps coming back just yeah. like the Hydra. Yeah. And then what are some sort of external resources, you know, like the nephew that you right. can, can call upon to help you? Um, cause it's often extremely difficult to do this work alone. Mm -hmm. You need that outside perspective. So the Serenian Hind is, uh, number three. And that kind of brings us into these aspects of 
what you've been trying to go after um, that cannot be attacked, that can't be pounced on, but rather what is a, a way that you can approach a problem with receptivity, with patience, rather than aggression or force, there's like an allowing of it. And when, when we recognize that there are times where we're pushing too hard, sometimes it's, it's the letting go that really allows something to begin flowing again. Right. So maybe you have a relationship with your, with your son, let's say, and you keep trying to force him to do things, right? You keep saying like, son, like you have to do your homework and you know, you have to like do these sports and you have to become maybe this kind of profession, like when you grow up and there's like a very like grasping sort of active attacking kind of way of trying to solve your son's problems. And you find that if you do this to someone that you care about, you'll, you might actually alienate them. Yeah. And so your attempt to solve your son's problems actually makes everything worse. And a better style might be to let go, mm. let him breathe, yeah. let him explore, just hold space for him. Yeah. And that's kind of this more feminine, uh, yin passive principle kind of thing. And that's like what Hercules has to do with the hind. It's mm -hmm. like, he has to let go. He has to approach it in this more passive way. Yeah. So the Aramanthian boar is representative of these like really intense animalistic primordial energies inside of ourselves. But how can we work with it without being consumed by it? You know, what's the wild energy in you that wants to come out but often can't? And why can't it come out? You know, how can we allow it in and then not uh, allow it to take over us or for it to be so overly structured that it's lost all its potency. You know, what are the ways that you can hold that space for the wild instinctive principle? Um, you know, the, the principle of aggression, you know, it's not like you should allow yourself to go into a frenzy, but rather you should invite aggression in and then practice martial arts, you know, or play music in a really intense way. Like you need to be able to channel these intense shadow materials because there's there's gold in that, right? Like there's something that's very uh, life producing in those intense um, sort of primordial energies that are inside of us. Right. So humans, you know, we're, we're conscious, we're kind of like gods, but we're also mostly still animals. Mm. All of our physiology, our biology is still animal. And so there's a lot of drives we have. There's a lot of instincts we have. They're very, what we might call like kind of wild and they mm. might be sort of like inappropriate at certain times. Like we enforce so much sort of uh, purity and composure yeah. and presenting a certain kind of persona that's like very, very, um, We'll just say like queen. <laughs> and yeah. when we do this, we actually kind of forget who we are. And yeah. there actually is like an animal side of us that uh, enjoys food and enjoys warmth and wants to have fun and laugh and mm. needs sex. And all these things are, are things that sometimes we kind of deny ourselves in, yeah. in service of being, uh, you know, a more responsible adult. Mm. And that can exacerbate the shadow. Yeah. So the Aegean stables uh, representing some aspect of the shadow that you've been ignoring for far, far, far too long, you know, a mess that has built up because you haven't been paying proper attention or done the proper maintenance. So what have you been putting off? What is something that you've been avoiding that needs your attention? It's like, you know, it's there and you know, it's building up, but you keep just sort of stuffing it back into the closet every time it, it grabs your attention. Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of what this could be. There could be like literal examples, like 
you haven't washed your car. I mean, <laughs> you know, like that's that, that's true. We have we have very material things in our lives that like we've put off. Right, the house is filthy. The house is so filthy, and once it gets so filthy, like we can't even approach the problem because it's overwhelming. And There's it's like, often well, an emotional out. component to that, right? Like oh, when yeah, you look course. into people who hoard things like that, it's like, oh, this isn't just like pure laziness. Like there's usually some really dynamic emotional attachment to things, or you just can't rally the energy because you're so depressed. Yeah, and that builds up. So that ability to take care of things in the material is a pathway into actually a, a deeper inner dynamic. Yeah. And if we're, we're going to get like a little more, uh, you know, psychological, cerebral and kind of a little more heavy, um, you know, if you're someone who has like a, a trauma, you might be avoiding dealing with that trauma. Yeah. You might be avoiding relationships altogether, mm-hmm. for instance, because you don't want to confront this thing inside you yeah. that you really need to confront. And that can build up and build up and build up until you're, until you wreck your life. Yeah. Right. So there's, there is this kind of, uh, this waste inside of you, this mess inside of you, this chaos inside of you that you do need to piece by piece engage with it, confront it. Mm. Just like Hercules needs to sort of clean the stables, like yeah. just like one scoop at a time. Yeah. But don't bypass, right? Right. But no bypassing, right? <laughs> so like, uh, you know, to, to deal with this trauma, like you start going to therapy yeah. and you, you stop putting off going to therapy and you say, you know what? I'm going next yeah. week. You got to do the dirty work. So the Stymphalian birds, aspects of oneself that have been eating away at our time, distractions, behaviors that really prey on your attention and sap you of your energy. So ask yourself what distractions or trivialities or things that really don't matter um, have been eating up your time. What do you... um, you know, what are you letting distract you, distract you each and every day that you know really isn't good for you, yet you can't help but allow it to just keep pecking at you and pecking at you, you know? And how do you take steps towards refraining from that distraction or letting those things go? Your phone is like a little container of oh Stymphalian birds. It's like <laughs> if you let your phone do it, oh, it will one. eat away at you. Like yeah. Twitter, it's even a bird, right? <laughs> You have you have the uh, the, the logo a Twitter bird. is a bird. It's oh tweeting God. right, and like it it'll just you know you it'll peck away at you and peck away at you every time you check Twitter. Right. You're wasting time, right? And you get like that little like you know dopamine hit, and you're right. just like oh, like you're feeling good, and your friend tweeted at you, but like in reality, it's just time is slipping by. Yeah, it's it's funny because like I mean, the Stymphalian birds is like just as a concept of something that distracts you that's trivial. That is so much more prominent nowadays than it probably ever was right. in the yeah. past. And like, that's like, it's, like, it's really a product important. of luxury for us. Oh, totally. Like yeah. you couldn't do this in a time when like your everyday task is what kept you alive. Yeah. But when, when in the modern world, so many of those things are taken care of, yes, we then have all this opportunity for expansion and spirituality and to expand our consciousness, but also we can waste it just toiling away. Yeah. And the internet is designed to waste our time, which mm. is what's so so difficult it's like it wants your attention it's calling to you like, you know, like pooping on you just, and just pooping on your life left and right and you know both of us and i do struggle with this because we're on the internet a lot for, I know, for the for work, work we do. Yeah. yeah oh man but yeah that's extremely relatable that's a really good example Okay, so that's the six labors. That's the symbolic, psychological, archetypal expressions and how you can use it as that uh, vessel of self-inquiry. And that's kind of, you know, the gist of Monthly Mythos. 
Uh, now just sort of imagine you're with a group of people and there's interesting discussion and Q and a, uh, it's, it's something that I think can be extremely powerful for people to be able to, as I said, sort of reclaim these stories and find, um, the psychological significance in your own life. Right. So the next monthly mythos is going to be Vasalisa the beautiful. Yeah. Or Vasalisa the wise, as it's often called as mm, well, different versions. That's going to be on Saturday, May 8th at 12 p.m. If you want to sign up, go to www.goldenshadow.org. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadow.org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.